Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. We are on the back end of hunting season. For those of you who have been getting out in the woods, out on the prairie, up in the mountains, I hope it has been going well and that you've been successful, whether you've uh, bagged an animal or not. It's been a pretty good season for me, um, but uh, not the most eventful. We had a good duck opener here in Minnesota. We've had some really good grouse and woodcock hunting. Uh, deer hunting was a little bit quiet for me and uh, the crew that uh, that I hunt with, but uh, but it was good to get out there nonetheless. And as we head into the holiday season here, uh, I'm preparing for hard water hunting, as we like to call it. So getting out on the ice here in the north and chasing fish, either by angling or by spearing. And today I'm excited to share a conversation with you that I had. Uh, this actually was recorded last year with Jay Leach, who's a retired uh, professor from uh, the uh, North Dakota State University. And years ago, he wrote a book called Dark House Spearing Across North America. And if you go and Google that, you'll see that it's out of print and it's very hard to find copies of this anymore. But um, Jay really wrote what's probably a definitive um, piece and the only piece out there on how to do dark house spearing. And so I had been talking to him for several years about getting him on the podcast, and we finally made it work last year. And I think he's got some good perspectives to share with you. If you've been curious about dark house spearing, which we get people reaching out all the time who are curious about it. And I think today's conversation will be a good con uh, a good one for you to, to sort of dip a toe into this world and learn more about it and some of the history he's got with it. And uh, please do also check out other content we've got on the Modern Carnivore website, which is complimentary to today's conversation. There's different videos, uh, podcast discussions, and stories and articles on the practice of dark house spearing. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Jay Leach. Well, Jay, thanks so much for inviting me out to your place here. This is... It's beautiful, your uh, your home, and uh, right on the the edge of the prairie here. It's my pleasure. Um, I'd asked if you would uh, come on the podcast. I think actually it was a few years ago we had talked about maybe trying to get together, and then it took a while till I was sort of coming through this area of the state and gave you a call and said, "Can we meet up for a little bit and have a conversation?" And and it worked out, which is which is great, but. I'd reached out to you because you wrote a book in, let's see, this was published what year? 80-something. That's I, right. I was going to I was gonna look at it here. Anyway, somewhere, sometime in, a while ago in the 80s. I started, uh, I started it in 1985. Okay. I, I spent a year in Washington, D.C., and I couldn't go spearing. Yeah. 
So I went to the Library of Congress and started doing research. And you can get lost real easy there because there are so many interesting sidetracks. I can imagine. But uh, about a year later, when I was doing a sabbatical at the University of Minnesota, I wrapped the first edition up. So, yeah, it would have been sometime in the, in the late 80s. Okay. And then this one, actually, uh, there was uh, maybe 2000. Oh, 92. Yep, there we go. So the book is titled Dark House Spearfishing Across North America. And it's the only one of its kind. There really isn't a whole lot out there. This is a pretty niche activity, isn't it? I think it still is the only book on spearing. There are books on spears and decoys decoys and and plenty of books on ice fishing, but not on spearing. So, and I'm trying to think, you know, I I have had other episodes where we've, we've been out spearing talking about it, but for those who haven't heard those episodes, describe if you would, what the dark house spearing experience is for somebody who's in, in Florida listening to this, let's say. Well, you cut a big hole in the ice, maybe two by three or four feet, and you're in a dark house. There are no windows, so you can look into the water, and we call it fish TV. <laughs> you can It's in eight or ten feet of crystal clear water, and you can see all kinds of fish swimming around, and you hang a decoy down there. It could be an artificial decoy or a live decoy. And hopefully a northern, which in Minnesota is all you can spear except for rough fish, a northern will sneak in and try to get that decoy, and that's when you slide your spear in the water and and stick them. Or in the last few years, I maybe speared two or three fish each winter. I usually I usually watch, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. I take somebody else out and let them spear. I don't spear as many as I used to, but. What is the, uh, what's the biggest pike you've ever speared? 28 pounds. 28 pounds. And that was in East Twin Lake in Alaska. Wow. Wow. That is, uh, that's a big fish. What year was that? Yeah, yes. I'm old. I don't remember all these things. (laughs) Uh, In the early 90s. In the early 90s. Okay. And, uh... When you were spearing Alaska, and that's I wasn't sure, actually, Alaska is one of those states, I think I have researched it, but I've, I've forgotten. So it is it is legal to, to be dark house spearing in Alaska. Um, very similar in terms of what you're targeting up there. Anything different, fundamentally different from the Midwest? Nope, pretty much the same. Yeah. And I had a friend up there who had a plane and a cabin on, a, on East Twin Lake. You have to fly to the lake. And he was a guide, and he took us out, and his his fish house was full of holes, <laughs> light coming in everywhere, and he was in about maybe 15, 16 feet of water. It was crystal clear, and he'd run his decoy right on the bottom. Now, remind you, he was a guide. Yeah. <laughs> run his decoy right, and he said he has a lot of trouble hitting him. Well, I, I said, just pull your decoy up. And I, I brought a few fish right up into the hole to show him, you know, that, uh, so other, pretty much the same as here. Yeah, yeah. 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 So talk a little bit about the history, if you would, of, of dark house period. So you, this research you did when you were living in Washington, DC, what were you looking at? Were you looking at some of the origins of it in North America? And I tried to find the definitive origin of 
dark house or winter spearing. And at first I thought maybe the land bridge, you know, across the Aleutians, it came that way. But I couldn't find much evidence either in Asia or Europe of dark house fishing. Uh, but I did find evidence that some of the Native Americans in this part of the country would would uh, cover themselves with a blanket or something and peer down through a small hole and spear fish. So I wouldn't, I can't give you a definitive answer of how it started. Yeah. But uh, I would probably give credit to the Native Americans for introducing the the Norwegians or whoever it was that, <laughs> that came here then yeah. to spearing. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. It is uh, it is unique that aspect of of having a dark covering over over you, and like you said, I always describe it as as TV too. It's it's a big screen TV in the floor that you can just sit sit and watch. And uh, and there's something there's something peaceful about that that I think is is neat. So if you if you go back to those origins though, it was it was putting a blanket over yourself, um, ch- probably some way chiseling a hole through the ice uh, obviously didn't have modern technology of, of cutting holes and uh, in terms of the actual spear itself did you did you find like what were the first spears made out of uh, golly I don't recall uh, pretty rudimentary I, yeah. as, I assume but right yeah. right probably like maybe bone and and, yeah. and, and wood handle something like that um, so, and and I think you talk about it in the book of of twentieth um, century sort of the the, uh, the era of depression and the subsistence uh, necessity to to getting big fish. And I might be mixing things up with stories of, of my family. And I was just talking with my ninety year old mother recently. who was talking about how um, her family, you know, during the depression, really, really. Uh, survived on, on, on a lot of, of fish and, and wild game and things like that. But, um, I think that that definitely in modern times was a, was a, uh, a popular point when, when spearing was, uh, was, was more, was more popular. Is that, is that what you, what you discovered in some of your research too? I think you're right in that it started to become more popular about the time of the Depression and later. But I don't remember ever writing anything about the Depression, mm. so that might have been from your side of the story. Might, there. Might have been from some of the stories I've been told, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it is something. So I've, I've been dark house spearing since I was a little kid. My dad actually loved, so you talk about, uh, pike being the focus. My dad loved spearing whitefish, uh, lake whitefish. And so that is definitely something that I, uh, like to do as much as, as pike, um, doing some of that early season targeting when the ice is a little bit thin, maybe a little bit more of a, of an adventure out Mm -hmm. of the, out of the ice to make sure you're in the right spot. Um, but um, but what is it about pike that you think that that really lends itself well to 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 spearing? Boy, good question. I think they're they're maybe curious. They're yeah. pretty aggressive, so it's fairly easy if you if you're in a halfway decent spot. It's fairly easy to attract them into the hole, and occasionally they'll come flying in and hit your decoy and fly out again and scare the pants off you, which is kind of fun. <laughs> Uh, so, so true. <laughs> so probably they're, that they're curious, and there's there's plenty of them around usually. Yeah. So you you get plenty of action, and of course you see an occasional walleye, but they're usually just swimming through on the bottom. 
looking around and yeah uh, well let's talk about how how you attract them and what the the fish would be curious for you have on the table here a traditional spear line and jig stick that is the first decoy i ever used when i was about 10 years old really the first time I was out with my dad, we were on Pickerel Lake in Ottertail County. I was about six. And I was looking down the hole, and this alligator came in and scared the <laughs> heck out of me. And maybe a few years later, I started going out with a family friend who is in the... I dedicated the first edition to him, Jake. Mm-hmm. And this is the this is the decoy that he used when he would take me out. And one day, when I, again probably 10 years old, he left me in the house yeah. all by myself. That was exciting. <laughs> oh, that is exciting. So using this decoy and that very spear, I, uh, I speared my first fish. Wow. That is, that is great. So if we look at this decoy here, so I'm just picking it up, taking a look at it. So made out, maybe I thought it was maybe balsa, but it's a, it feels like a heavier wood, maybe a pine or, or something like that. But this is cl- classic... Um, Homemade decoy, right? Do you know who made this? I don't. But it's like so the tail and the and all of the fins are probably like a, you know an old like soup can or something like that maybe yep. wouldn't you yep. think? Um, and then just a simple little little bent hook here on the top that was made with a pair of pliers and then and then filled with some lead here in the bottom. Yep. Really nice smooth job. I used to uh, used to pick up and collect decoys. Yeah, I had a couple hundred and about that time decoy collecting got popular (laughs) and you couldn't find them anymore for for five dollars for a pail full of them yeah uh but there's all kinds and you you asked what what attracts them i think i wrote in the book that uh, you put a pepsi can down there and and wiggle it around and that'll attract them yeah yeah Uh, (laughs) red and white i think is the best Agreed. But I also, I don't as much as I used to, but use live decoys. Uh huh. You can yeah. buy sucker minnows, and now they're up to like seven bucks a piece. Yeah. A foot long sucker minnow that you hang down there. And the trouble with that is the first three pound northern that comes in and grabs onto that, <laughs> you got to put another $7 sucker minnow on there. Uh, and then you can't, um, I use portable house almost exclusively. Yeah. You know, in the old days, you just put the put the sucker minnows in a minnow pail and drop mm-hmm. it down in the in the hole. And then when you come back the next day, you chisel it out and you had your minnow. Yeah. Well, you can't take them home and do that very easy anymore. So yeah. they're usually good for one trip. Yeah. Yeah. So you um, you you use portable houses predominantly now too. That's I, I shifted probably I don't know maybe ten years ago started started doing doing that more and uh, I love it. Yep. I, I think the the aspect of of uh, a very light portable these hubs um, really change the experience and allow you to to move much more easily than the the traditional houses. Did you? I presume though you grew up using more of a of a hard sided house. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Do you yep. still have one? No. 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 Got, gotten rid of them all, or they fell apart, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think one fell out of the back of the truck once, and that was kind of the end of that. <laughs> that was the end yeah. of that. But it's it's so much easier to to go from lake to lake and move with a modern hub house. Yeah. Yeah. So you, in terms of of the process, uh, you talked about cutting the hole. How what? How about uh, cutting the hole? What's your methodology these days? Well, I prefer to go early in the season when the ice isn't thick yet. Yeah. 
Uh, but the, the method, when it isn't thick, is just punch a hole either with, I've got the Milwaukee on the, I forget what it's called, the Milwaukee drill on the... It's, it's a, it looks like Eskimo makes that yep. one. Okay, you're right. Uh, yep. And that is, that's really slick. Yeah, yeah. And you punch one hole, and then I've got a nice saw with about a four-foot blade. Yeah. And with thin ice, you can cut that hole out in no time. Yeah, yeah. When the ice gets, you know, a foot or two feet thick, you got to punch many holes with that auger and then just saw it the, the little bit left between the holes and take the uh, the ice tongs and pull that chunk out. So it's yeah. a lot easier today to cut a hole than it was in the old days <laughs> when the ice was three thirty inches thick and you had to do it with a chisel. That yeah. took a long time. <laughs> and it was especially long when you cut the hole and found out there's weeds all the way to the top. <laughs> I don't want to be here. <laughs> that is always, that is the risk and, and the bummer when you, you go to all that work and then you realize we're not on the right spot. Yeah. It was funny last, last winter. So I think the last podcast that, that we talked about, a woman named Katie Berger had, uh, had come from Colorado. She called me up. I'd been a guest on her podcast a few years earlier and she said, Hey, can I come to Minnesota? I'm starting my master's degree program next January. And, uh, I want to do one thing before I start that program is I want to go, I want to go dark house spearing. And so, um, she came up and, uh, it was funny because I punched, I punched a hole where we went and we were actually going after whitefish. We were getting into pike and whitefish, but I punched a hole and I looked down through the, uh, through, through that hole, just trying to, you know, in that, in that bright sunlight to see if I could see anything. And, uh, maybe I'd cut it, but I, I got, I pulled the chunks out and I looked down and I said, yes, this is the spot. And she thought, she thought I was seeing fish. Oh. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm just looking at the bottom. It was, it was one of those perfect scenarios it was probably it was about seven and a half feet the bottom had a bunch of actually i think they were they were uh, dead zebra mussels and they were really light colored so you had seven and a half feet clear water little weeds on the edge otherwise open in the middle and a nice bright bottom it couldn't have been any any more perfect yeah yeah i always cut a hole and look down the hole yeah and sometimes i'll stick a daredevil down there yeah Jiggle it around so you can see how well you can see, and yeah, you know. that's a, that's a good point to see what the what the clarity is yeah. of, the, of the area. Well, even even drop a I got a camera. You can drop the camera yeah. down there and see really well. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about crystal clear water, um, you know, and and with zebra mussels as an aquatic invasive species, which is a problem in a lot of respects. Um, you could say from a spearing standpoint, it helps a little bit. It's sort of a, a little uh, silver lining in the midst of a, of a, a bad invasive species um, because you're able to see down in that water column much more easily on, on lakes that do have zebra mussels. What about what about cloudy lakes, though? Have you ever gone over to Wisconsin on to Winnebago to do the, uh, the sturgeon? and spearing no i haven't i i've been there but i didn't spear yeah Yeah. i've I've often thought of going um but i did a few years ago when i saw some video on it uh I was actually surprised. I didn't realize how murky that lake is, and how many of the of the uh, spears are actually they're almost throwing at a guess of yes. whether that fish is right below them, and that that takes a lot of it out out a lot out of the activity for me. I guess it does. If I can't see the bottom, 
I don't like to fish there. I've I've been in fish houses where you could see down maybe four feet, yeah, and you could sort of make out a a shadow of a fish coming in. That most of the fun is gone when you can't really see that fish and his and his fins moving and see the perch on the bottom. And no, it has to be it has to be clear enough for me to see the bottom before I'll fish. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what are some of the if you think back on the stories? What's over the years? What's your what's your favorite dark house spearing outing you've had? Have you had? Is there one that stands out where you say, "Oh, I was on this lake," and like I'll give you an example. My my, my brother and my uh, my younger brother, and my dad. I remember one time we were out spearing, and. Uh, had a muskrat come up through the hole and jump into the house. <laughs> I had that happen once. It scares you. <laughs> I've also had a mink come in. Oh, you had a mink yeah. come in too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I can, I, I can say that the, I think probably some of the, the most eventful, um, dark house spearing outings are, are ones where maybe you didn't even throw the spear. You just see that fish and the what if of, that large shadow that comes in, which like you said, when you were a kid, the alligator coming in or the croc, Mm -hmm. you know, they are big fish. And, and it is a thrilling, it's a thrilling moment. I often think it's, I, I think, um, Dark House Spearing, I call, have a, do a lot of content under the, the name Hardwater Hunters. Because I think it's more hunt, it's the activity is more hunting like than fishing like. Would you agree? It's very much like sitting in a tree stand waiting for a buck to come. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. But you asked about the, one of the best stories. Uh, you know, I don't recall many many great stories. It was always fun. Uh, Being in Alaska, I've been up there twice spearing. That was fun. And the day I speared that big one, Becky was along. Your wife. My wife. And then the night before we'd heard the, the wolves howling all night, we were, we were about 80 miles from the nearest town. Yeah. And a few minutes after I speared that big one, we'll say 15 minutes, another big one comes in. And I said, Becky, spirit. And she had been looking out a hole in the fish house, looking at the wolves. So she couldn't see. You know, her eyes were all... <laughs> so she looked down and she couldn't see. And I didn't want to spear another big one. So, so that big one got away. Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, your, your eyes have to adjust. You yeah. know, and you think yeah. about those extremes from being out on a on a snow-covered lake how bright that is yep. to the darkness of the uh, yep. of the interior of the house but nowadays the the most pleasure i get is taking newbies out and watching them yeah. especially watching the ones who think oh that's easy <laughs> and then they miss <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah so that spear you've got there and you ever you take that out anymore that's the one that spear is the one you when you were 6 years old you got uh, maybe the ten, maybe ten. Yep. Okay, gotcha. Yep. Um, that is definitely one of the classic, you know, homemade spears. Or do you know anything about the origins of it? I'm pretty sure that was made by Cliff Seba in, okay. his, in his shop in uh, in in Maine. Okay, not not the state of Maine, but Maine, Minnesota, which is over here. Right. Yeah. Um, so the that has got a long handle. That's about a six, six and a half foot, it looks like, yeah, maybe? Yeah, it's about six. Yeah. And that's one thing for me personally. Uh, 
I do like a longer spear like that. Uh, you know, I've got some that are newer these days that are shorter. And I like having a little bit of a longer hold where I've got the backhand and I use my, the, my lower hand just to guide and aim, if you will, yep. and use that backhand as the, as the force. I was watching some spearing videos on YouTube the other day. And people were letting their spear go above the water. I, I've You're seen that. Miss every I've, time. Seen, I've seen that so many times. Yeah. I can't even tell yeah. you. I, it's, I, I was talking about taking new people out. That's I don't know. It's, it's just the way I say it. I always, I always tell them you got to get that spear right down behind the ears exactly. and then drop that, and then just a little bit more than a drop. You know, just give it, give it some force, but you don't. Don't need to go crazy. Yeah. And that's exactly what I sit there and coach them. No further, further, get a little further, right behind the head. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Do you have, uh, have you bought new, any newer spears in recent years, or you just stick with the old classics? I have two spears that I use regularly, made also by Cliff Seba, who I'm sure he died 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both six tines. Okay. Six times, okay. And that one's but, a five, I think, yeah, right? I've, I've speared fish with this one. You know, if spearing northerns is kind of like shooting big game. If you if it's a well-placed shot, you don't need a, a big rifle. Yeah. And yeah. if it's a well-placed shot with a long-handled spear, uh, you rarely miss. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen some of these single-tine spears that guys have been making in no. recent years? Yeah, I've, I've seen them. I don't know if they're... If they're just trying to be cute in terms of the design or if guys are actually using them, I'm sure somebody's listening to this podcast going, of course, haven't you seen the videos on YouTube? But uh, I don't know if I'd want to do that or not. I, I like having a few times a little bit more of a Does the, uh, does the end come off then after they spear it like a harpoon? That's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, I've just I've just seen them out on, uh, you know, somewhere on the, on the internet. Because I saw out east someone was selling... A harpoon-like spear. Okay. Where the head would come off. Okay. Oh, interesting. Well, let's talk about the the nature of the the industry. That's the the big industry that surrounds dark house spearing. I think it it uh, I think nationally it equates to maybe twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars a year, or something. Like that. It's not very big, which is one of the things I think that is fun with dark house spearing. Is so much of it. Again, going back to that idea of the uh, of the depression era, is you didn't really need a whole lot of gear. Is you know you need something to to cut a hole in the ice. You need something to dip down in the water to attract the fish, which, like you said, could be a, a Coke can or a Pepsi can, uh, depending upon your preference. Uh, beer and then can, you, a beer can, and then you need and then you need a spear. Um, and so I, I think that's one thing that that I find interesting about it is is that there isn't a whole lot of industry that that surrounds it. Yeah, I'd, I'd argue with you just a little bit. I think spearing today is way more labor-intensive and maybe even, well, not equipment-intensive because there's so much electronic gadgetry that goes with angling. Right. But with angling, you know, you punch a hole and put your put your electronics down there and look around and fish for a minute or five minutes, then you go punch another hole. Right, right. With spearing, you don't do that because it's too much work <laughs> right. cutting the hole. Although I... I have moved uh, sometimes pretty quickly, but it is more more labor intensive. I think cutting right. a big hole and 
And uh, I forget the numbers. You mentioned twenty or thirty thousand. You said dollars. Yeah, yeah. You meant, you meant people. <laughs> no, no. I oh, was just sort oh. of. I was joking about <laughs> okay. how there isn't really big okay. industry running because, okay. like you said, like look at the yeah. angling industry. I mean, you've got every type of swim bait, uh, plastic, yeah. uh, monofilament versus uh, fluorocarbon, new rods, reels. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of industry around it. There, there are makers of spears. They're mostly cottage industry. Yep. It's it's yep. it's small family run uh, outfits. There are you know the the augers and the saws, uh, but not a whole lot. Which which I think is is sort of fun that right. there's not a whole lot of of, of industry on it because it is such a, a niche activity. Yep. And I'm not aware of any commercial decoy makers. No, either. yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think um, oh, what's the one uh, lake? It has has the word lake in it. Mm. Um, I think you can see their their decoys sometimes, but I wouldn't call them a high quality necessarily. Of course, again, I'm going to have somebody write in and say, hey, we make a good quality product. But I I think a lot of them, like you said, uh, are, again, these these artisans, uh, the decoy makers that, uh, that make really unique designs put a lot of heart and soul into it north dakota has a bunch minnesota has a bunch of these and what's been fun in recent years is to see it passing down too to where a lot of older carvers are passing down those traditions to the next generation there are a lot of young people that uh, that are picking up which i think is super exciting yep yeah, I used to know some of those. Dewey Johnston out, yeah. of, out of Perm. I think his brother might still make decoys. Yeah. Well, they uh, still got the per- the big Perm Festival, uh, yep. the decoy yep. event that goes on. I, I have not gotten over to that. Did you, when you when you did the book, did you uh, go around and, and sell it anywhere? Or? You know, it was the Minnesota Dark House Association yeah. that egged me on to do the second edition. Okay. There's only a thousand copies of the first edition, which sold pretty quickly. Yeah. And and we did 5,000 copies of the second edition. Okay. And each one of the chapters of the Minnesota Dark House Association ended up with a bunch of those copies. Okay. So, yeah, I knew those I knew those fellows at the decoy shows. And the decoy show, I shouldn't say this, but it's kind of like the state fair, you know. If you go about every five years, that's often, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's often enough. enough. But it's, it's amazing some of the artwork that people... They yeah. make a decoy. It looks just like you pulled a fish out of the water. Right, right. But that you don't need that to get to Spear Northerns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there are. I think there are actually decoys in the Smithsonian, aren't there? I mean, the, the whole uh, the whole decoy as folk art space is is fascinating. I think um, as to what draws you know for somebody who's in it who loves who loves this this sport this activity, it makes sense. But a lot of people who aren't really re- connected at all to the to this activity buy these things up for lots of money right i yep. mean yep. i want to say that a couple hundred thousand dollars some of these decoys mm, have gone be. for yeah could yeah. Be. yeah did you sell any years once you started uh, collecting a bunch you know i sold off a bunch a year or so ago for maybe i sold 50 of them for an average of 30 or 40 dollars okay so, okay yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's but, fun to see. You know, people use them to. I just stuck that one up there. I'm sure my wife is going to find something else to put up there. <laughs> but people use them for decor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a nice one. I like, like you said, that's the classic red and white. That's a nice size too. So uh, John Kachorik, guy who does a lot of dark house spearing stuff with me, he's big on these Bruels that are about. 
14 inches long, 15 inches. They're huge. You ever use one of those? I, it's, I, I'm more of a small decoy kind of guy, but he swears by that, by that decoy. I've got a couple of pretty big Dewey Johnston decoys, and I've got a big Randall decoy. Uh, but, I, yeah, they work the same as the little ones. <laughs> so do you, uh, what's your general method in terms of when you get out in the house of uh, switching versus sticking with a decoy? Do you switch it up and, and let me ask you this, does it make a difference? <laughs> I don't know if it really makes a difference, but if you sit there and look at one decoy and it's a slow day for, for 20 minutes, it's time to switch. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. I think the, uh, I think the switching is more for your mental, uh, mental state than yes, anything else. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. How would you characterize sitting over a hole and not seeing a fish for a few hours, but enjoying it nonetheless? Do you, I guess, do you enjoy that if you don't see a fish? I probably enjoy it for the first hour. Yeah. The yeah. second hour, I'm thinking about, should I move? What should I do? Should I try something else? But, you know, if you're on a good lake, you will see perch and sunfish and tulipies and whitefish and eel pout and, and walleyes. And so it's fun watching those, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And muskrats occasionally. And muskrats, yeah. But they pop up in the hole and scare the pants off you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in your book, again, Dark House Spearfishing, if you can find a copy, everybody listening, sounds like they're, they cost a lot of money is what uh, Jay said because there's very few copies out there, right? I think you can find them on, like on Amazon or something. Okay. But yeah. Okay. Um, in part three... You do state summaries, and you've got seven states listed, which are Minnesota, Alaska, Michigan, Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wisconsin. Um, as of the writing of this book, were those the only states that allowed spring? Do you recall? Or were those just the primary ones of where there was some activity going on? As of the first writing, it wasn't legal in North Dakota. Okay. But by the second edition, it was. And as far as I know, those are the only states that allow spearing today. Yeah, for dark house spearing as opposed to yes. open water. Yep. Yeah. Um, and you, I know, I believe last time you and I talked a couple of years ago, you 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 like North Dakota. That's one of your favorite spots, if I, if I recall. Is that true? North Dakota is good. They have a lot, of, a lot of big fish, and it's a five-fish limit. Okay. <laughs> so occasionally I do go a little over the edge. But I usually have a home for them. Yeah. You know, yeah. somebody somebody wants some fish. So, okay, I'll go out and I'll yeah. go out and get you a few. Yeah. But Devil's Lake, North Dakota, is is very good. As is uh, as is uh, Lake Sakakawea. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And this year, I saw. I'm pretty sure I saw that where you can spear walleyes in some of those <clears throat> some of those North Dakota lakes. You can. Interesting. I think I might have seen that that uh, news item myself, which is interesting. You know, any any of the places out west where they're spearing walleyes, which of course in Minnesota and just sort of is a gas at. Yep. But uh, yeah, you can spear them in Mo Montana, Montana, Montana South for sure. Yeah, it's yep. because they're an invasive, right? <laughs> little bucket biology that brought him there at some, at some point, I think, right? Um, so five-fish limit in North Dakota, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot of fish. Do you, uh, do you like eating northern pike? I think it's one of the best fish in freshwater. 
Yeah, I would agree. You ever you ever made stock out of the uh, out of the carcasses? Made a fish stock? No. I tried that a couple of years ago, and uh, I have to say it was amazing. The the uh, you know you think of you know all the all the names given to to northern pike snot rockets and th- different things like that. Obviously, they do have a lot of slime on them, and they can have an odor to them. Um, when I made the the uh, the stock with a, a couple pike I'd speared, um, what was interesting was about halfway through the simmering, you get a lot of fishy smell in the house, which you think, oh, okay, that that doesn't sound too pleasant, but it was. It was. Uh, it smelled like seafood. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yes. Like I, so I don't know what it was, but uh, it was it was a it was it was a fun thing to do. I think I'm gonna do it more often. Do you ever eat? Uh, you ever eat northern pike livers? Never have tried the livers. I uh, I love them, but I think they're probably filled with all kinds of heavy metals that you probably don't want to make as a regular part of your of your diet i'm not a huge liver fan i like liver in 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 uh limited quantities but the uh the northern pike livers are so smooth you wouldn't believe it it's such an amazing uh try that yeah you should try it i like a little chicken liver wrapped in bacon yeah yeah these are so like i say they're so subtle the the flavor it's got that liver flavor but it's very subtle and it's so smooth you wouldn't you wouldn't believe it i think today the thing to do in in this part of Minnesota, anyways, make pickled northern. Yeah. Because the limit here is 10. Right. And that's the other advantage of North Dakota. There are no slots. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that is one thing that, that I think I'd love to see happen more often in the in Minnesota now. We've got that three-zone system for, for Northern Pike is, uh, you know, in the zones where you've got the large number of those hammer handles, those small ones, is getting more people out to spear those small ones and then pickling them, which is a way to eat them without worrying about the bones, right? Because right, the vinegar right. just disintegrates the, the the bones, which is nice, and uh, and so I think it's a great way to I think it's a great management tool, and I think the the DNR should promote that as a way to to maybe pull out on some of those lakes that are over infested with uh, with the small hammer handles. I agree, and you know you asked about seeing fish. If you sit there and a fish comes in every three minutes and it's eighteen inches, that gets a little old too. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's that's very true. Uh, how about the uh, the the culture around it? The, 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 I see in the book here you've got the Cuba prints, which you of know, course I asked Les Cuba yeah. if he would paint a picture like that, yeah. and his his commission or whatever you call it when you're an artist yeah. was like ten thousand uh-huh. dollars, and I didn't have ten thousand dollars, <laughs> but he went ahead and he's as you know he made several. Yeah. So in the first edition of the book, I have. I have, let's see. This is, I think this might be a second. Second. second The first edition picture is, that's on the cover, That's on the cover, okay. Okay. So uh, if you're listening to this, you can't see this inside. On the cover, he's got the classic underwater. I think it's five, five prints he did in the series, didn't he? Yeah, I'm not sure. Something like that. You've got three of them in here, I see. But the cover is the underwater scene of the pike 
going towards the decoy with a spear coming down. And then on the inside, the classic one of the inside of the spear house, um, you know, looking down the hole. And these, these were, uh, these were made, uh, at the place where I grew up spearing, which is at, uh, an old resort up on the whitefish chain, uh, north, north of Brainerd where I grew up. I've been there. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a good place. He, I think he just sold the place though. Uh, which is which is unfortunate because I'm sure uh, I don't know if the the dark houses will will continue. Hopefully, hopefully they do. There was an issue with that picture though. I think there's either a beer can or a snooze can in the bottom. There is, <laughs> but then I think he changed it at one point. Wasn't there? There was some kind of controversy over it in the bottom of the lake, right? Because yep. yep. then it was, uh, yeah, there was something about well, it looks like littering. Oh no, I know what it was. Yeah, so it's in it's in the uh, sled. You can see that he oh, fished it out. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that was the uh, that was the story behind it, but uh, but for the first edition, I think he uh, I think he was still alive, and he let me put the picture on the cover for like ten books. Oh, I was I was wondering. I was going to ask you about that because to get that the, the, the second edition, yeah, this was after he'd passed, and his nephew I think had it, and it wasn't quite as cheap that time. <laughs> Doesn't doesn't surprise me. But what what else could you have on the cover? <laughs> right. No, you have you have to have the Cuba print. Abs absolutely. That's quite a pike here on the back of the on the back cover. Is that on the first edition too? You've got a picture of you with that with that fish. Good question. <laughs> Probably. I should have, I should have dug one no, out. That's that's a, that's all right. That's, that's a the, fat fat. That's pike the Alaska. There. Oh, that was the Alaska one. Okay, twenty eight pounds. Huh? Big fish. Big fish. Well, Jay, this has been this has been fun talking about dark house spearing. Are you gonna you get, we're here in November? Are you gonna get out on some early ice this season? I did some scouting on Friday and it was still pretty sketchy. Yeah. This Friday I will be on a little lake up by Lake Park. Okay. There there will be enough ice. It's gonna be cold now all week. Okay. Okay. And it's a lake, a small lake, but it has a very high population of northerns and a good size distribution. Okay, wonderful. I always go on the Minnesota Lake Finder. Yeah. And I, uh, I hate it when the when the survey was done like eight years ago. But then you know you have to assume well all those little fish then grew up, but that's not always the case. Right. But when you got a recent survey and it shows a nice size distribution, a lot of fish, that's a good place to go. Yeah, absolutely. That and that's a really good point. The lake finder, not I think most state uh, game and fish uh, wildlife agencies are are probably starting to do that. The Minnesota lake finder is a great tool, uh, like you said, and a great way to do some scouting from home beforehand, and then absolutely. go out and check out the ice and see how it looks, and uh, set up a simple gear, and and uh, you're in business. But this is my biggest issue right here. Yeah. This, this is where I grew up. Okay. And this is the issue. So much wealth of a water. A thousand lakes. Yeah, exactly. That's a good problem <laughs> <Yeah>. to have. <laughs> where did you grow up? I graduated from Battle Lake. You did? Okay. Okay. Just yeah. barely, but I yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jay, thanks so much. Uh, let's do it again sometime, and let's try to get out on the ice sometime. I'd love to take you out. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com. 